0: Exodus 2, verse 23, and we'll run through 315. During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people people of Israel, and God knew. for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Father, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to your word. Your word is true. May we not make it out to a lie, not by misrepresenting it, not by twisting it to meet our goals, and not by refusing to accept its claims and truth. So, Lord, please send your spirit to bring these strong truths to their purposed ends in our lives and in this world. I pray that you'll be with Pastor Song as he presents your word. I pray you'll be with anybody who is hearing this sermon, uh, who is not among this body, perhaps by record. But I pray your spirit will lead us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Song, he's come all the way from St. Louis, so uh, he has a different truth, I guess, no? No, the same one. Pastor Song.
1: Good morning, Christ Church. My name is Dan Song, as our Elder Mike just uh, mentioned. Uh, Many of you probably don't know, but I go way back with Pastor Andrew Vandermoss, who is on sabbatical right now. Uh, When I went to seminary in St. Louis, uh, I was called to be the planting pastor for another campus that he was pastoring. And so for five long and good years, uh, I got to work with him, and he began as a mentor, uh, but soon became not only just a colleague, but a good friend. And, and so I really appreciate the, the privilege that I have to come here and for him to share the pulpit and for me to bring God's Word to you this morning. So it's with that that uh, we're going to be looking at this passage this morning. Uh, let me go to the Lord and pray. I know we just prayed, but let me pray for us as we depend on the Spirit to work in our hearts this morning. Lord, we give you thanks just for how you are the one who meets with us this morning. Wherever we're at, Lord, you desire to meet with us and to show us your deep and profound love. And so, God, I pray that your spirit will work within us this morning so that we might be changed and transformed, not by anything that I say, but because of your word that comes to us and into our hearts. Do that good work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife Hannah and I uh, love musicals. And our favorite musical of all time is Les Mis. Uh, not only because of the stories, but because of the music. And maybe some of you have never seen the musical, but you've seen the film adaptation with Anne Hathaway and Jack Hume, uh, Jack, Hugh Jackman. I knew I was going to do that. Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe. Um, But the reason that we love this musical so much is because of the main character, the protagonist, Jean Valjean. The movie or the the musical begins with him having come off of a nine-year prison sentence. He had stolen bread, and now he's on parole. And he's given this yellow passport, right? And this yellow passport signifies him as being a criminal An outcast, a thief. So even if he goes looking for food and bread to eat, what do the vendors do? They upcharge for the cost of the bread. When he tries to find lodging at a place to stay at, what do they do? They deny him because of this yellow passport that he holds, signifying that his identity is one of a criminal, a complete outcast and loser. But his life changes and is transformed by this one bishop that he meets. As he looks for lodging, this bishop lets him into his home. He gives him bread to eat. He gives him a place to sleep. And his life is forever changed because of the grace and mercy and love that this bishop shows Jean Valjean, a criminal, Now being Jean Valjean and knowing his plight and the rest of his life, as he sleeps, he sees this silverware and he knows he could get so much money for the silverware. So in the middle of the night, he takes the silverware, puts it into his sack and in the morning, he leaves early before the bishop gets up to be able to take this silverware and sell it for a good price. Now the antagonist, Javert, this policeman runs into Jean Valjean And what does he do? He arrests him, and Jean Valjean knows that his life is doomed. At best, he'll be in prison for the rest of his life, but at worst, he's going to be executed. And it's in this moment where he thinks his life is doomed, this bishop comes running. And this bishop not only says, yes, that is my silverware that I gave Jean Valjean, but moreover, brother, you forgot the candelabras that I gave you. And in this scene, as he reflects on the grace and mercy of this bishop, this is what he sings. He says, Yet why did I allow that man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life, he claims, for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world, this world that hated me. This meeting with this bishop changes Jean Valjean's life forever. But in this passage that we read here, Moses's life is changed for the better as well through his encounter with the living God, Yahweh. And it's through this encounter, Moses's life changes. And what I want to suggest for us this morning is that our lives change when we encounter the living God like Moses. And we're gonna see this just in short, briefly, three ways. God meets us in our waiting. God meets us in our doubts, and God meets us in our captivity. God meets us in our waiting. To understand this, we actually have to go back way back to the beginning of Moses' life. You see, he was born in a period where Pharaoh was executing every single male boy. And so Moses' mom tries to hold to him, hold on to him for as long as she could, but realizes, This can't be. So she makes this basket, right, of reed, and places Moses, the infant, in this basket into the river and sends him off, hoping for a better life for him, not one of execution. And what happens? Long story short, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses in the river and takes him as her own. She adopts him into the Egyptian family. And now this Israelite boy becomes an Egyptian. And what does that mean for him? One of significance. One of power. He has the best food that he can eat every single night. And he lives in the wealthiest family in the world. This becomes Moses' story. But one other thing that we learn about Moses is he is a man who yearns and burns for justice. And in the first two chapters as you read about Moses' life, you realize that this man wants to see justice wherever he is. So he sees an Egyptian beating on an Israelite slave. And so he intervenes and with his bare hands he kills this Egyptian and buries him so that no one finds out. The next morning he sees another injustice with two Jewish or Israelite brothers arguing and fighting so he wants to come in and reconcile and what happens these two israelites say what moses you're going to kill me like you killed that egyptian and he's freaking out he's scared he realizes that people know that he has murdered an egyptian but more so pharaoh has found that and wants to kill moses and so what does moses have to do he has to flee to another country in Midian. And in Midian, as he flees to Midian as a refugee, as a refuge, as a fugitive, he sees seven Midian women who are at a well being harassed by these shepherds. And what does Moses do? Because of his heart and yearning for justice, he steps in and takes care of these seven women and also their flock. Long story short, Moses ends up marrying one of these Midianite women. And and she actually is the daughter of the priest of Midian. And so here, think about this. Here is a man who grows up in Egypt with all this privilege and power, yearning for justice. And what do we read in verse 1 of chapter 3? Read this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. How far he has fallen. A man with so much power, and he's now, he's lost all his power and all of his privilege. He's a man on the run, a fugitive. He's a foreigner. And now he's basically tending sheep. And not his own sheep, rented sheep his father-in-law's sheep how far moses has fallen and not and not only that he's been in the wilderness in midian taking care of flock for 40 long years and when he fled egypt to go to midian he was already 40 years old moses is 80 years old tending sheep for 40 of those years How much life has changed for him. And he's been waiting, waiting for God to do something. Let me ask you a question. For many of us here, haven't we all been waiting in one sense or another like Moses? Some of us have never thought that we'd just be stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads. Taking care of children, driving them from one place to another emailing teachers and taking care of different school activities or summer summer clubs. And you never thought you'd be tending sheep. Others of us maybe have thought of dreaming of becoming a CEO or a doctor or making some huge impact in this world. And yet here you are working a nine-to-five job, pushing paper, working for a million bosses above you, and you never thought you'd be here in this moment tending sheep. Others of us here feel stuck in Grand Rapids. I don't know, in St. Louis, people don't like being in St. Louis. Maybe some of us, some of us here are going, well, how have I been living here in Mount Horeb, on the side of the mountain for 40 years, when I want to be living in the coast or in a bigger city? And here you are just tending sheep. Others of us have longed for children, longed for a spouse, and we've waited and waited, and we're just tending sheep, but here's the thing, we're waiting, and it's not just waiting. You're waiting on the side of of Mount Horeb in the place you never thought you'd actually be. So it's not just that you're waiting, but you never thought you'd be where you are. But this is exactly where Moses is, and he's being faithful. Later on in the book of Exodus, Moses is described as being content, intending the sheep and the flock. Yes, he's not where he's supposed to be, and it's not, it doesn't make it any easier. But yet he is faithful in the mundane, routine, normal day of life and he's faithful, and it's in that context that God meets with him in his waiting. And that's the story of scripture, right? Isaiah, he just does his normal, ordinary routine of going to worship, but it's in that moment God encounters Isaiah. Think about the disciples, they're they're fishing, and it's Jesus who comes, and in their normal, ordinary, commonplace moments, Jesus comes and says, you're no longer going to just fish, you're going to be fishers of men. We see that with Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he's going to slaughter and kill Christians, thinking he's doing the right thing. It's in that ordinary, commonplace of work, God encounters Paul. You see, for each and every single one of us, this is something wonderfully encouraging. That though you might not be where you want to be, though you might have been waiting for so many years, God can still meet with you and encounter you in the ordinary, in the commonplace, and in the routine. God meets us in the waiting, but God also meets us in our doubts and fears. Moses here begins in verse 4 with, here I am, right? But he ends with, who am I, in verse 11. Like, here I am, God. But it becomes one filled with doubts and fears, as he says, but who am I to go to the Egyptians and set my people free? You see here, as Moses sees this burning bush, it captures his attention. Because why? This fire, we read, is not consuming the bush. It's not consuming the bush. In other words, what do you need for a fire to grow? It needs to consume whatever it is burning, right? But as Moses looks at this, the leaves are not being consumed. The branches aren't being consumed. There's nothing being eaten by the fire. This fire is completely self-sufficient. Some of you might have the solo stove, right? That nice bonfire, that smokeless bonfire. This is better. This is better than the solo stove because there's absolutely no smoke coming from this bush. And so this intrigues Moses, and he comes up to this bush. And it's in that, mo- in that moment, God calls and says, Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. And, and God tells him, you need to take off your sandals because this is the holy ground you are sta- standing on. And so he does that. And God reveals to, him, to Moses who he is, that he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And it's in that moment he realizes who God is, he hides his face because he is so scared. But God doesn't just reveal who he is, God gives him this mission. And what's the mission? You are to go to Egypt and to Pharaoh and you are to set my people free. And it's in that moment, he says, who am I? Like, we all here have doubts and fears, don't we? And Moses has those doubts and fears. He's thinking, don't you know who I am? I'm a murderer. I carry this yellow passport. I'm a villain. I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I am this man who is no longer wanted. And you think I'm the one that needs to go and to go on this mission? And and moreover, not only that, think about what the Israelites think of me. They know I'm a murderer. They know I'm a fugitive. They don't want me to come. I am absolutely useless. And in those doubts and fears, God meets him where he's at in two ways. What does he do? First, he tells Moses, or he calls Moses by name twice, right? He says, Moses, Moses. And here's what the significance of calling Moses by a name twice means. This is Tim Keller, the uh, former pastor in New York called Redeemer. But this is what he says. He says, the doubling of a name means emotional intensity, magnitude of relationship. It always means I want to have a relationship with you. It always means love. It always means intensity. You see, God knew Moses by name and loved him. And in his doubts and fears, he's reminding him that he is the Lord's. He is loved. That though you might carry that yellow passport, you are mine. You are my son. You are my daughter. And nothing can ever change that. But he does that in another way too, right? In verse 12, God assures Moses that I will be with you. I will be with you as you go back to Egypt. It doesn't matter who you, what you think your identity is. doesn't matter the sins that you've committed or the sins that have been committed against you. It doesn't matter the condemnation that you might receive or the shame that you might be buried deep in your life. But I will go with you. I remember when I first began uh, ministry as the pastor of Crossroads. I was actually the the college intern, and so the church knew me as this little cute baby, right? Oh, he's taking care of the college kids, oh, he's married without kids, and I was just this little baby. And now being called to become the pastor of Crossroads, there's so many doubts and fears that I had. Like, how can I pastor 40, 50, 60-year-old people in my church? How do I shepherd and guide parents when we don't even have kids? And there were so many doubts and fears that entered my mind, thinking that there's no way I can do this. But there was a member of our church, Greg Hewlett, who was going through stage four cancer. And I thought I was meeting him every other week to minister to him, but he was actually ministering to me. And you know what he said? He said, Dan, you are an ordained minister of the gospel. Do you know what that ordination means for you? It means that God has called you and he is with you and that he will use you to whatever end, even with all your doubts, all your insecurities, all your failures, God will use you. Now, many of us here aren't ordained, but we have something even more beautiful. Each and every single one of us has a spirit of God that dwells in our hearts. Emmanuel, God is with us. And no matter what we go through, no matter what our story is, No matter the shame that you carry, God is with you and he calls you by name. You are his. But the last thing we see here in God's encounter with Moses is that God meets us in our captivity. God meets us in our captivity. To this point, we looked at how Moses or how God met Moses in his waiting, in his doubts and his fears. And, and that's important for us to be able to identify Moses to, with Moses. But here's the thing. This story, this passage that we just read, we're not called to identify with Moses. Listen, we are called to identify with the Israelites in this story. The Israelites who are in captivity. Yes, Moses waited for 40 years in the wilderness, tending sheep. Yes, Moses had doubts and fears of being a murderer, a fugitive. But here, as we identify with the Israelites, they waited 400 years as slaves in bondage and in captivity. Think about the doubts and the fears that they had. Our parents and our forefathers have told us about this covenant that God made with us. Like, when is that going to actually happen? We are dying, generation after generation is dying. Is God going to hold true to the promises that he's made? And there's all these doubts and fears that the Israelites had and here we are called to identify with the Israelites. And how does God meet us in our our captivity? Well, look at verse 24 of chapter 2. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God heard God remembered, God saw, and God knew in our captivity, in our sin, and in our bondage to whatever we're beholden to. God hears us. God remembers us. God sees us. And God knows our plight, right? I mean, as we we read through chapter 3, God heard their groaning, right? In verse 7, I have heard their cry because of their taskmaster's. Verse 9, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. But God also remembers. In verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the memory verse that we read, right, or you had before you in verse 15, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you shall remember me. Here, we, God remembers, but also God sees our captivity and the sufferings and the toil that we experience. Verse 7 I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And in verse 9, I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And then God knows our plight. I know their sufferings in verse 7. You see, God sees, God hears, God remembers, and God knows the sufferings and the captivities that we experience on a day-to-day basis? What are you imprisoned to? What are the bondages that are holding you from experiencing the freedom of God trying to set you free? You see, it's good to know that God hears and remembers and sees and knows. Like, that's important, right? I got COVID about a month ago, and after getting COVID, You get a lot of good sentimental texts and emails, right? Oh, I'm praying for you. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me know if there's anything I can do for you, right? And you could argue, oh, they know, they see, they hear, they remember that I'm sick and my family is suffering because of me. But sometimes you go, well, that's not good enough. You're just saying that because you have to say that because I'm your pastor. But... You know what matters is those people that, without even asking what I need, they bring a meal for my family. They bring medicine. They write The doctors write scripts so that I get, uh, you know, I, I heal quicker than not. And here, we see God do one more thing in verse 8. What does God do? He says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Don't miss that important imagery of God coming down, God stooping down, God condescending down to his people to set them from their captivity and their bondage. And that's what he does for you and for me. This is our story, because this should also remind us of the significance of God's Son, Jesus, right? Jesus, who comes down, who stoops down, who condescends himself, who takes on flesh, who takes on perishability, who takes on suffering for us. And not only suffering and perishability, but actually dies for our sake to set us free from our sin and bondage and captivity so that we might experience the freedom that can only come in Jesus Christ. You see, this is our story. One where not only God sees us and remembers us and hears us, but he comes down because of his absolute love for us. Even when the worst is known about you, you might try to hold you might try to hide that yellow passport deep in your pockets but even when the worst is known when god knows the yellow passports you carry love is still offered to you for those who have placed their faith in christ love this unconditional love and freedom is offered to you because of his immense love and what christ has done for us that we cannot do in our waiting and in our doubts and our fears and in our captivity God meets us and transforms us like he did for Moses and the people of God in Egypt. As I close, I want to just quote this scholar, and this is what he says as he reflects on this passage. He says, What Moses' life changing encounter teaches us is that we serve a God who will go to extreme lengths to redeem the lost. He does not cast aside his people because they are unworthy or incapable. Instead, he condescends to meet with them, change them, and free them from bondage. The only appropriate response to such glorious grace is, Who am I? Who am I? You see, Jean Valjean wrestles with that question through that musical and through that story. He, ident- he wrestles with his identity in being tied to his past as a criminal and as a prisoner with the numbers 24601. And he wrestles with his past and who, what his identity is. It's not until the end, whereas he is on his deathbed, and his son-in-law is there, Marius, and he tells him of his entire life story. He asks Marius, who am I? And his son-in-law says, you're Jean Valjean. Here is your identity. You're no longer a number, but you are a name. Who am I? We are sons and daughters of the king, and nothing can change that. We are heard, we are remembered, we are seen, and we are known. And our God will meet you in your waiting, in your doubts, in your captivity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, who not only remembers and sees us and knows us and hears us, but Lord, that you would send your Son to come down and suffer, suffer what we deserve and die the death we deserve and live the life that we could not live so that we might experience the glorious freedom and love that can only come in Christ. So wherever we are at this morning, whatever passports we carry, that might define us or try to tell us the lies that we are defined by. Lord, help us to believe the truth of what you have done for us and the freedom that can only come in Christ. Do that good work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.